Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 45 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Sarah Bacon of the e-commerce development and optimization shop, Command C. Sarah's here to talk today about a solution to one of the biggest hassles agencies have to live with, RFPs. Respondent RFPs can suck the life out of any agency. You're the expert, but the potential client is telling you what needs to be done and for how much before you even had a chance to really understand the scope. And because you're not getting paid for this work, you have to try to limit the amount of time you invest in the proposal, but you also want to protect yourself so you end up padding the quote, and in the end, nobody really wins. When was the last time an RFP project actually finished on time and on budget anyways? I can't think of a time either. Luckily, there is a better way, and that's paid discovery. Sarah has spent years optimizing her own process for not just doing the discovery, but selling it as well. And today, she shares everything she's learned. If you're tired of responding to yet another RFP, then this is the episode for you. All right, Sarah, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You founded Command C, an agency specializing in e-commerce development and optimization, 12 years ago. How have you and your agency evolved since then? <laughs> uh, oh, so much. Let's see. I came out of grad school with this uh, super broad skill set in uh, from graphic design to photography to a little bit of web development. So when I started Command C, my vision was actually to open like a, a copy shop, hence the name Command C, um, which has now sort of transformed into like a command center. <laughs> That's a little bit more of our identity. You know, 12 years ago, the landscape looked super different. We were doing a lot of graphic design work. Um, I remember the first e-commerce site we built was on Miva Merchant. The the first site I built was like back in the day when you took a Photoshop file and cut it up into slices and the whole thing was images. And so I'd, I'd say we've come a long way since then. Um, we evolved into a custom design and, and development uh, studio, and we're doing a lot of CMS portfolio sites, mostly on WordPress. And but we always did e-commerce sites, and at a certain point, we just realized, hey, we're really good at e-commerce. It's something that we can really niche out into, and you know, really get to to this place where we're like claiming expertise on specifically, you know, the e-commerce space, because it's different. It's, it's, it's different than building a portfolio site. And um, so at this juncture, we've evolved into uh, a very focused e-commerce shop. Uh, we're a bit more development heavy, you know, so I'd, I'd say more than a creative agency, we're a, a development agency, although we do have some creative resources in-house, and uh, we do a lot of consult and uh, some optimization work from from the development side of things as well. Interesting, because I, I was looking over your LinkedIn, I think it said that in the 12 years you've worked with something like 500 different clients. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head what that number is. <laughs> I wasn't is, trying but... to quiz you or anything. 
it's been a lot, you know, and it's been really cool because we've worked with all levels of clients. Like I think that kind of longevity in the space, it's like we really started from, I mean, I was essentially a freelancer who, you know, I'm not alone in this, but worked with very small clients all the way up to, you know, big, large corporations in that, in that time. So it's been fun to have that range of experience. What you just said is that you were essentially a freelancer when you started. That's something that so many of my listeners can relate to. A lot of them would kind of classify as accidental agency owners. They started out, they they had the skills to deliver the work themselves. They slowly started building something up and, and they turn around and they, a few years later, they have a couple employees and they're slowly working their way up. And, and it's, it's crazy how things can change very quickly from just working with those small mom pop shops to working with like looking at the logos on your website, working with Starbucks or Comcast, things like that. It's, it's interesting, but one thing. Yeah. I mean, just to respond to that quickly, it's, this is actually something that I talk about a lot and have done a lot of my own business coaching around because there's a real issue with, you know, you start something because you're passionate about it and you're good about good at it. And then you're like, holy crap, I'm actually, you know, doing something really different. I'm just running a business. And fortunately for me, I really like running a business as well. But it's it's been a really interesting process. Like the mindsets of those different roles are very, very different. Um, so yeah, that's a that's maybe for podcast number two. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of those things that really changes from when you're a freelancer to when you're running a real agency to when you become more of a consultant is that you're no longer just uh, construction work. You're no longer just kind of executing yeah, on the these technician. Di- exactly. <laughs> but a lot of times that's what clients expect from you. And you actually recently wrote a post on the Shopify blog titled, Why You Should Stop Responding to RFPs and Do This Instead. Can you just talk about what made you decide to write that? Yeah, well, it's really reflective of our own experience, right? So, I mean, I have seen... I have seen every kind of RFP you could possibly see in 12 years of of business. And um, I don't think there's been one time that I've responded to an RFP and like in my gut been like, this is a good idea. Like, this is the right way to handle (laughs) this process. And so just listening to that, my team and I have... um, had this discussion so many times about what would be the right way to handle this. And out of those discussions came a framework for a process. And out of that framework came trying it out on certain clients in sort of like a baby steps kind of way. And, um, you know, to the, to, to the point where we've evolved a, 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 process that really works and a way of talking to clients about this process that I believe in wholeheartedly. So it's really just been my, my experience is, is how it came about. Yeah. And I mean, reading over the post, it's clear how much work has gone into developing that process and how much thought you've put into that over the years of iterating and improving it and all the feedback you've gotten. I want to talk more about what's, what's wrong with the RFP process because I get it. A lot of my listeners get it, but it seems like it's 
there's little that you can do. It's just the way a lot of clients want to work. So what is it specifically about the RFP process that just kind of repulses you? <laughs> RFPs come to us in a number of different states. And one of the things that we do often is we partner with other agencies as well. So not only do we get RFPs that are from clients themselves, um, that are from a sort of freelance consultant who the client has hired to put together the RFP and to help vet the right fit agency. But we also find ourselves in positions where we're working with or already have a pre-existing relationship with a digital marketing agency per se. And, and they've helped this client put together this RFP. So, you know, they, they come to us on the, on the highest level. Like there's, there's three different sort of user groups who are putting together and delivering the RFP. And then the state that it comes in from each of those groups is like its own thing. So there's a myriad of different formats that these things can take. But one of the most dangerous things about an RFP is, is self-prescription. So, um, and I'm going to lump together because there's, there are these three different user groups. Um, self-prescription would be coming from the client, but then there's also preconceived notions. So this consultant or the agency says to the client, Hey, you know, this is the best platform for you to use and this is how you should do it. And the client gets this in their head and then, and they usually have a trusting relationship with this consultant or agency that they're working with. And so trying to sort of, from from our perspective, come in and say, well, what really is the right platform for your project is sometimes threatening to the other relationships that have been built. So it, it's very complicated why it's it's a problem. Self-prescription, because, you know, the example that I gave in, in the blog post that I write is like, you know, it's, it's like I go to the dentist and I have a toothache and I say to the dentist, I have a cavity. And he says, well, you might have a cavity or she, and she says, but you might also, you know, have a cracked tooth. You might need a root canal. Uh, we don't really know until we get in there and we do some digging. And I say, I don't want to invest in that. And it's going to take too much time. I really just want this pain to go away. Please just fill the tooth. And they're like, uh, okay, like you're the client. I'll do what you want me to do and are paying for me to do. And I get the tooth filled. And a month later, I'm like in the same amount of pain. You know, it's the exact same example. It's funny because my girlfriend actually is a dentist. And so she has people who try to go in and tell her exactly what's wrong. And the, the, one of the main differences between in the medical fields and in creative services is that they have a legal obligation to like not just do that. But still in the, in the services field, if you just do exactly what your client says, you're not doing them a favor. You're not actually helping them out in the end. And you can, you can do a lot of harm. Yeah. I think we have a moral obligation, you know, which I would say is – you know, maybe the the code there isn't as <laughs> commonly obliged, but um, I do think that we have a moral obligation to sort of step back and be like and and explain it to the client why this is important, what what the value of discovery is, and what what we find time and time again is that 
it's a process of discovery for the client just as much as it is a process of discovery for us. I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, one of the first steps in this process is to say, like, what are the goals here? Like, what's the most important thing to you in undertaking this project? And, you know, we'll come up with a list of three to five goals. And once we get into the project a bit, all of a sudden those goals change. And it's not that the goals necessarily went away. It's just that in the e-commerce space, there's so much that's important. And so additional goals get added on when you're trying to select the right platform or platforms or apps or whatever, sometimes those you have to make compromises in there. And so that discovery process is incredibly valuable to a client who doesn't know what they don't know. And in my experience, that starts to become clear once they uh, buy in to, to this as the right approach. In my opinion, there's two sides. So there's, there's one, well, at least two. There's, there's one where it's you've spent over a decade building up this expertise, building up this knowledge, and it's not necessarily fair for you to give that away for free. And I think that's a valid statement. But I think beyond that, though, is it's not just about trying to capture as much value as you can from the client. A lot of it is really just this is necessary for us to have any idea of what is really needed to do the project, the way that will get the results you want. Yeah. We could go down a million different rabbit holes with this, but to bring it back to your you know, initial question of what is the problem with RFPs, there's also just the plain fact that, yes, we don't want to give our experience away for free, but just the nature of the RFP itself, being that it's an unpaid process that requires a lot of time, you know, this sort of like icky position that we kept finding ourselves in as a team while we're kind of quoting out these big projects, because it's never one person who's doing that. We do we do that as a team, is that we're like, well, how do we speed through this? Because we're not getting paid for it while giving ourselves the best possible chance of winning the job while protecting ourselves amidst the unbelievable number of unknowns in this project. So, you know, we have to inflate this price or take the risk of putting ourselves in an incredibly precarious position because we've seen so many times that like you get into the project and the project changes course because that technical discovery didn't happen up front. And the agency is then expected to be responsible for that change in course. You know, the client doesn't like when you're like, okay, well, you're changing, you know, here's this unknown that nobody even knew to ask a question about. And we can't take the hit for that. Like that doesn't right. go very well. It would be like, it would be like buying a house and getting mad without doing an inspection and getting mad at the plumber. Yeah. when he finds out that the plumbing, the plumbing has rotted out and it needs to be all replaced. It, it's, there's a lot of expectations on the agency to know things that they can't actually to be know. the expert, you know? And so that's the other piece of it is that inevitably uh, if we commit to doing something and we don't have all the information about it, it doesn't look good on us when the unknown pops up mid project and our reputation is too important 
to us at this point in time to be messing around with that. To be honest, I think you were right when you said we could go down a million different rat holes with this because this is something that I, I can just love ranting about and talking yeah. about. <laughs> but to, to try to rein it in, to try to rein myself in, really, is you mentioned this earlier. So you, you mentioned how you have developed this process for paid discovery. Can you talk about what that process is like? Yeah. So it's essentially the equivalent of like, building out the architectural blueprints for a house, right? So, um, you know, the first stage is to talk to everyone who has a stake in the operations. So um, from, you know, the person managing the website, you know, day-to-day, the fulfillment piece of it, the sort of finance piece of it. We want to talk to each of the different stakeholders in the project and, and ask them like, what, what do you do on a daily basis? What are the must have pieces of, you know, this solution? And, and a question we ask a lot is in your ideal world, what would this solution do for you? How, how could this solution make your life easier rather than, than more complex? And we work with, with each stakeholder to kind of decide what is, you know, a must have, what has to be there in order for you to get your job done and what's a nice to have. Um, so that we can, you know, cause, cause I mentioned earlier, there are inevitable sort of, these are large systems and there are inevitable compromises that have to be made somewhere. So getting a clear picture of that from each stakeholder is sort of like phase one of um, the project and really understanding like what are the, the top goals here um, from, from each department. If you don't understand the, the motivations, if you don't understand the why's, it's really hard to build a solution that you're almost just guessing at that point of what they really want. Yeah. Yeah. So once we have a really clear understanding, we actually like prepare documentation confirming what our understanding was and what we've learned. And we send it back to the client and we make sure that we get that right. At that point, we start researching and consulting with third-party providers. Um, So obviously, you know, each project has the need to integrate with different numbers of third-party providers, but we're we're looking at sort of the the core ones first and foremost. So the e-commerce platform, um, inventory management, if there's a required POS system. Um, and then we sort of trickle down into like the lighter app functionality, but we start with the, the core software that we're considering and we set up a demo, um, for the client to actually get some hands-on feeling of the tool and have them really buy into it and ensure that it'll, it'll work for them. And so this process narrows down the potential right fit quite a bit we're there as sort of an unbiased, supportive role, helping to communicate our understanding of the project in, in ways that maybe the client's having a hard time communicating or doesn't know to communicate. Um, so, you know, we really kind of all come together as a team. We're, we are just an arm of their team who can speak to what, what they need and cut through technical jargon and that that sort of stuff. And then once the client makes the right decision, we're then in 
a position to, you know, really put together a, a, a clear scope of work and we can confidently assess costs. Either we, you know, put together a, like kind of like a, a light version of, you know, here's the overarching sort of like framework and a ballpark cost for them to kind of then bid that out, you know, get, get some other agencies to weigh in on what, what that would look like you know, so they, we always advocate for clients to get, you know, multiple opinions. Um, but this is something that's very informed that they can then take to another agency and say, this is what I'm looking to do. It's, it's informed. And, uh, what well, you know, would your cost be in it? Or we can get into a real detailed sort of scope of work. When you advocate for them to kind of shop around once you have that blueprint ready, how often do they end up going with another agency? Uh, I don't think it's ever happened. <laughs> and that's, um, that's one of the things that it seems like whenever I talk to people who do, whether they call it road mapping, technical discovery, anything like that, that's one of the things they're like, well, I'm basically giving away everything I need to do to do this project. But at that point, the client trusts you. They, they don't want to just take a flyer on someone else who might be a little cheaper. I mean, we vet our clients just as much as our clients are vetting us, you know, like one of our sort of unspoken company values is like is quality of life and (laughs) nothing drains company morale more than like a difficult client relationship. And these are really big projects. And once you're in, you're in. You know, the other thing I really love about the technical discovery process is it's a really low risk way to test out the relationship for both parties. And, and, you know, not that anyone is good or bad or anything like that. It's just that you want a good fit and not all relationships are a good fit. And so if that ever, you know, happens, like the client hasn't, has, hasn't lost anything. Um, and, you know, but what we both stand to gain is, is huge. So, uh, yeah, that foundation of the relationship is, awesome right and, and it gives them an easier way like you said it's almost like a trial run to see if it's a good fit the relationship between the client and the agency but also does that at a lower price point than just doing it with with the big full project you have you're going to have a higher uptake on the paid technical discovery to get them in the door and then once they say like hey this agency actually has a crap together they know what they're doing let's stick with them they're going to be more likely to stay with you for, for the big project but I'm curious, so how long typically would a technical discovery uh, project like this take? The minimum is three to four weeks. I'm going to say four weeks, the minimum, because um, anything that takes less than that probably doesn't require a technical discovery. So uh, the minimum is, you know, four weeks, three, four weeks. We've gone up to eight weeks for really large projects. So I'd say four to eight weeks typically. And because that was actually going to be my follow-up question was that, are there projects where they're small enough that this doesn't make sense? Yeah, totally. So, you know, the, the platforms that we mostly specialize in and focus on are Magento and Shopify. And in a few, you know, be it, you know, we have a couple of different tools. We have a website planner. Um, We also just have conversations (laughs) with prospects and, you know, between those two things, if they're just looking to build an e-commerce site with a few different extensions, like we can get to what, the right solution is for them, you know, within a few 
phone calls or, you know, gathering data. And of course, like that's a part of our normal sales process. I'm talking about a solution where, you know, there really are multiple stakeholders in different departments, sometimes with conflicting desires and needs and more complex integrations. We really need to have a clear understanding of the inner workings of the business in order to find the best solution for the client. I'm thinking of this one RFP that we received where where it's not that the project was so technically complex. It's that the RFP had like every single possible e-commerce feature you could ever have on an e-commerce site listed on it. And that was one of these really like, that was a conundrum, right? Because they had a clear sense of what they wanted. I just knew it was a really bad idea. Like this is going to be a learning curve for you, period. So like do it in phases, you know, and and in those situations, I just try to have a conversation with the client and ask them to dig a little deeper as to like, why, why, <laughs> you, you know, um, right. you so- can't just throw in the whole kitchen sink and everything else and, and just. It, it, a lot of times it seems like clients will almost just want to cover their bases. And when you have so many stakeholders involved, everyone has their own little laundry list of things that they want involved in. But 80% of those plus don't actually matter to the ultimate goals. You know, yeah, there's that. I think that there's also like an education piece. Like clients don't – it's not their job to know what comes – out of the box with the Magento platform, you know, like that's our job to help them understand. And so, you know, a client might not know that like, yes, the shopping cart is built in, but like this sort of complex newsletter subscription, uh, whatever service that you want automatically feeding from all your, like that's not built in necessarily. And so, you know, I, I view it as our role to sort of help them understand like what's baked into the platform um, and might need a little sort of front end theming, but, you know, we don't have to write a custom plugin for and what we actually have to write a custom plugin for and that each of those items is like a line item, like each box you tick is adding to the scope of work. And, and so I'm, I'm happy to do that kind of education. I don't, I don't, you know, happy to give that part away for free. But. <laughs> right. But, but no, I, I like how you do emphasize the educational side of it because it really does come to that fundamental difference is that the client comes to you because you're the expert that they're not. And so while they may have preconceived notions of what they want, at the end of the day, you're right. It, it's your job to make sure that's what they actually need. Yeah. And I, I think it's the same thing as, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a little harder because there is just this sort of known way of doing things. But I think it's the same with getting, you know, clients to see where the RFP is flawed and, and that there's an alternative to it. And it might not be something that they're familiar with or that they've heard of before. But I think if you, it, you know, can articulate the value in it, like it just makes so much sense and they get that. I'm curious, how do you typically charge for this technical discovery? Is it, do you have a, a rack rate for it or is it, do you bill by week or like how does this work when there is different scope of, of what you're actually getting into? We do sort of break it down by how many weeks does this project need and we, you know, have a fairly good idea of like a range of hours that we're going to need to to put into it each week. Um, so, 
Yeah, that's, you know, and then it, that comes down to the scope of, of the project, the, the different integrations that they're going to need and, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, just like building a website, it's, it comes down to the scope of the project. Mm-hmm. And right. So, and at that point, when you do bring up the idea of paid technical discovery, because like you said, it is different than kind of the standard way of doing things in the agency world. Do you get ever get pushback from clients and saying, hey, like, why am I going to pay for this when this dozen other agencies are just going to give yeah. me the proposal for free? Yeah, I do. Um, I do get a little bit. But um, well, first of all, a lot of proposals that I see have discovery listed as the first line item in the proposal. So uh, I think that other agencies are probably billing for that work. It, it just is like and, and when that that actually works really well in our favor, because I get to say, yeah, you know, they're they're charging you for this, too. Uh, they're just doing it after you've signed the paperwork and have you locked in. We're <laughs> saying like, you get to test out this relationship. You get to make sure this, this solution feels right to you uh, with a minimal investment. And then that becomes, like I said earlier, the blueprints for the project. Um, so one, you know, in that instance, they, they get it. Um, but again, it just kind of comes back to the educational piece and, also, a client who doesn't get it after we've stated our case isn't the right client for us. So it's it's pretty self-selective. And there's a certain amount of pushback that's, again, of the educational variety where once it's explained to them, they're like, okay, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, you know, there's the the client who's never going to pay for something like that and always going to go for the cheapest deal on the block. And that's not who we are. <laughs> exactly. Let me stop Sarah right there for a quick word from our sponsor, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was in your last project, then you'd need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code advantage that's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code advantage all right let's get back to sarah where are most of your new clients coming from right now we are mostly referral based do you think that helps with the uptake in that you already have some legitimacy in their eyes from whoever referred them to you. And so they're not as concerned about um, any types of issues that could, could arise from that. With a referral, you always have the inside track, 
right? Like a referral is always going to be the most valuable kind of lead because there's a certain level of credential behind it. We've closed on technical discovery jobs from clients who found us through a Google search or, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can say that, that concretely. No, and I think that's fair because you're right. At the end of the day, this isn't some process you're forcing in that doesn't really make sense. It's something that fundamentally is a better way of doing things. So when you do have the opportunity to educate client wherever they come from, it if they're sane and rational and reasonable, which some aren't, but if they are, then usually they can at least understand where you're coming from by by having this paid technical survey process. You mentioned earlier that you do partner with agencies of different sizes to help them out with other projects and this and that. How does this work when doing those partnerships? Because your client isn't the actual end client at that point. Two things occur to me. Um, One is that it's even more important for us to advocate for this with our agency partners because our relationship with them is so valuable. Um, So, you know, we can't take or we won't take the risk on guessing at what the right solution is for their client. And then that sort of reflecting badly on us and, you know, not only jeopardizing our relationship with the agency, but jeopardizing the client agency relationship. So on that level, it's, you know, even more important for us to stick to our guns and, um, the other piece of that is that it can't really work without transparency about the relationship. So this is not a service that we can white label. <laughs> you know, if you have a clear set of design files and functional specifications, sure, we're happy to work behind the scenes. But um, this is really about communication and building a, a trusted relationship and lots of technical detail. So um, in, in the instances where we do this through other agency partners, it's there's a level of transparency involved. Interesting. Because how long have you been working with agency partners for? Oh, maybe eight years. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that came before the, the niche, the e-commerce niche. So, um, right. yeah. And then how long have you been developing your technical discovery process for? Like when was the sort of turning point where you said, this is something we're going to require. This is something we, we need to take more seriously. I, don't, I, I can't remember exactly, but I want to say like three to four years probably. I know this is something that a lot of agency owners, they, they intuitively get it. We're, we're almost preaching to the choir at a certain point with some of this, but it's, it's something that they get, but they really just struggle to get started with it. And so do you have any advice for how agency owners that do want to implement some paid technical discovery process, how they could get started? Just be courageous, you know? I mean, I think that for, for me, it kind of goes back to like sales 101, like don't be overly emotional about it. It's okay to lose a prospect, like try it out, you know? And so, and, and it's okay to be honest. I think for, for a while where I had my own sort of walls with it was that like, it sort of requires having a really honest, not going along with the crowd 
conversation, which of course is a risk. And if I went into every prospect with the attitude of like, oh my God, I just don't want to lose this prospect, we'd be in a really different position <laughs> than, than we're in right now. But if you sort of position yourself as like, no, I'm the expert and I deserve to, you know, my, my business and my employees deserve to work with great client relationships. And we're really looking for the right fit for us. Um, it kind of gives you the confidence to say, all right, I'm going to try this sort of unconventional thing and just be real with the client and say, like, I don't think this is in your best interest. And here's why. And I, I like the way you phrase it because it's almost as though you're saying you need to sell yourself first. And once you're able to do that, once you have thought about it and can fully accept that, no, this is actually better for the client, it becomes a lot easier to hold your ground when talking to the client about this. Totally. It's much easier to sell something you really believe in than something you don't. No, and I think just from talking to you, that was one thing as I got that, that from your process, it's clear that you're not trying to force this road mapping, this, this technical discovery process on every project and every single situation. You truly are doing it on, on the biggest, most complex projects that absolutely require it. And then at the end of the day, not doing it would be doing your client a disservice. So it really just seems like when it fits the solution as well as it does in your case, it's, it's something that is just it's better for them. And then you have to, whether they have to get over imposter syndrome or anything like that is it, a different story. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the best solution for your client. Totally. To wrap up, I want to go through a few just uh, quick questions. Is there anything you hate doing that you have to, you find yourself doing regularly? I don't love social media. <laughs> I can't say that I love social media. Um, I don't do much of it, but there's a part of me that feels like I should, maybe this is where, you know, the imposter syndrome comes up, but there's a part of me that still feels like to stay current. I got to keep that like up to date at least. Um, But it's never been a big revenue driver or traffic driver for, for my business. It does help me to stay a part of the community, which is probably the reason why I still do it. Um, I can usually convince Find a way to get curious about most things, and um, social media just doesn't do that for me. <laughs> no, I, I'm there with you. It's, it's like I, I'm on Twitter. I don't really know what to do that much with it. But then now there's like Snapchat and all those stuff that's coming out, and it's like I'm not even going to try with that. No, no. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and not to sort of take it back too far, but it, to me this brings up this really interesting point of like the difference between the technician and the entrepreneur, you know, and, and as a business owner, I've really had to have a fundamental mindset shift because what used to fulfill me was checking things off of my list. And that's a very technical attitude. And as an entrepreneur, I need a lot of downtime and I need a lot of space for strategic thinking. And I need a lot of open brain space. And that has been a really interesting shift. Um, so anyways, different conversation. No, but. no, no, but for sure. And so my next question would be, is there something you don't think you spend enough time on or, or you would want to even spend more time on? Not necessarily that you don't spend much on it now. As 
ask me a different day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm at this really, we're, we're at a sweet spot right now where I, I don't know what it is. And I'm apprehensive of even saying it, but, but today I feel like I have some semblance of balance in my work life relationship. And that has most certainly not always been the case. Um, but we're just in a sweet spot right now where um, I'm I'm working hard, but I'm not overworked. And I feel like I've delegated the things that need to be delegated. And, and what I focus on is really what I should be doing for the size of my business. I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, I mean, if that's, that's something that I think everyone listening to the show aspires to. Yeah, and I probably so, shouldn't have said it out loud. <laughs> no, but <laughs> that's great though, is that when you're able to really appreciate that and acknowledge yeah. that because so many people get to that point without realizing it and then just keep going, keep going. And it doesn't actually help. So I think it's really just time, you know, I mean, 12 years is a long time to have been grappling with this and, um, Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean that's the thing is that with someone, especially with someone with your mindset, where you are always trying to improve and you are looking for feedback and, and, and adjusting. After twelve years of it, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it, you're going to be in a place where it's pretty good if you've actually been doing those things. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> again, it's still a roller coaster, and tomorrow things might look really different. But <laughs> you got me on a good day. Yeah, nice. Well, I'm glad. But so, going with that though, what are your plans for the future with Command C? I would, in the next five years, I'd like to double our current size um, in terms of clients. And um, we, you know, we do a lot of ongoing support and, and optimization. So we have a nice retainer roster right now. I'd, I'd like to double that sort of slowly and organically over the next five years and really kind of keep refining our client list. You know, we want to be working with clients that are a joy to work with, that are smart, that have good ideas. The partnership there is just feels very collaborative and uh, we're both bringing sort of the best of what we have to offer to the, to the table to make the product that much better. So th- those are, those are my goals. Nice. And I like how, how clearly and how well thought out those are because they're not just a sort sort of pie in the sky. Let me throw something out there. Ideas. It's clear that you have thought about what's important to you, and that refining that client roster, refining those things, and getting there is the way to achieve it. So, Sarah, honestly, I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Before I say goodbye entirely, though, where can listeners go to hear more from you and more just about Command C? Best place would be to check out our website. It's uh, commandc.com. We have a blog, and uh, that's where you'll find the most information. And I'm assuming they can also follow you on Snapchat, right? No. <laughs> no, but but they can follow me on Twitter. It's Sarah Hart Bacon, uh, S-A-R-A-H-E-A-R-T-B-A-C-O-N, and Command C also has a Twitter profile. Awesome. I'll make sure you get all of that linked up in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Cool. Thanks, Andy. I don't think I'm going on a limb when I say that I doubt there are many of you out there that really enjoy the RFP process. You're giving away your expertise for free, but the proposal you give the client, you don't actually even have enough information to make it accurate. So no one really wins, but we often just accept that this is just the cost of doing business. Sarah today, however, showed us that with paid technical discovery, that doesn't have to be the case. 
The goal of technical discovery is to build a blueprint for success for your client. And after years of experimenting, Sarah has come up with a system that reliably does just that. First, you need to talk to everyone who has a stake in the operations. Then figure out how they work and what are their must-haves. But ultimately, it comes down to figure out what the real goal is. From there, you can prioritize features and get a clearer picture of what is needed for phase one of the project. And once you've done that, then it's time to prepare documentation confirming everything you think you've learned and share it with the client so you can actually make sure those assumptions are right. Then the early work of the project begins. For someone who is used to responding to endless RFPs, this may seem like a hard sell to the client. But at the end of the day, paid discovery is all about ensuring that both sides come up with the best result. While there may be some pushback up front, once you get the client to see the benefits, most are going to agree that it does make sense. And if they don't, just ask them whether or not their last project finished on time or on budget. That's all I have for you this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Tell me what it was you learned. I love hearing from listeners and positive reviews help us grow our audience. So if you could take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you next week. See ya.